It's December 30th. Welcome to the last episode of the Mike Alto Discography Podcast for this year um, with an album. Which is the year 23, 2023. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> 2023. Um, I'm talking about um, and the first album of the 1980s um, for Mike, um, Kiwi 2. Um, so for me, just on the, an appreciation level, this album ranges between very nice but um, pleasant and one of his great works. Um, Marcus, what um, in terms of um, the importance this album has for you, where would you say? Um, so for, first of all, we need to know it's only about 13 minutes of his music. Yes. Uh, and two cover songs. And so it's it's very brief. It is kind of like very very special, I find, because it's the first of a trilogy of releases that has some instrumentation and musicians um, mm -hmm. in common. Uh, and that's that's why I see it's it's sort of, um, I mean, in a way, like we talked about Platinum last time, where it is really the beginning of something new. But then actually, it was not really. It's sort of like a. Uh, a turning point, you could say, and now we get something uh, new again. Yeah. And um, the uh, inclusion of a of a new producer here, I think, plays a big role in in how this album kind of like came out to be. Um, because as it turns out, like David David Henschel. The, um, also, and, and he says that in an interview that I found somewhere is also, was also contributing mm -hmm. parts. Hmm. So, um, which really, as we kind of like said, maybe Platon was the first time that musicians had some sort of freedom to add something to Mike's compositions. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I love the album. I love QE2. It has a very, very unique sound. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's like overall, it's like, a, it's, it's an extremely cool, a musical statement, right? But I also understand why some people may have a hard time getting into it. It's, um, I think you say it's part of a trilogy. I think to me, it's sort of the beginning of a longer phase in his work. There are elements of music which come, like which he introduces over the, over in, the, in, in, in this period between 1981 and 1983, which keep reappearing on, 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 on his albums up until Tubular Bells 2. I think there's a long phase where it's almost, you could almost imagine there being one big session and then using him using the ideas and themes um, across a wide range of different settings in his, in his work. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I'd like to hear um, what you mean by that. Well, for example, there's, um, there's, there's a look back at the beginning of this album in Q2, and then there are elements which come, um, themes which come on crises on um, Five Miles Out. There's, um, I think, one section which is actually verbatim sample, sampled on, um, on of course. Five Miles Out. Of course. You know, see, it's Tower Tours 1, Tours 2, Tours 3 on uh, QE2, Five Miles Out, and Crisis. So, um, so there's that, and I think that that was like one sample even comes up, and or, or themes of them come up in um, Heaven's Open mm -hmm. um, at the beginning of the '90s. Mm -hmm. um, I think yeah. Amarok is so big that it's, at this point I couldn't even say what. Um, okay. But I know that, for example, that there were elements in Amarok which he, um, which were conceptualized with Morris Pert, 
rhythmical ideas, which you mentioned in an interview that they were listening to, um, mm -hmm. um, I think, street musicians with some um, mm -hmm. influences from the Middle East, I think. And then he was talking to Morris Pert about this. So this the team of musicians on this album influenced his thinking and his uh, music making to a large degree over the next decade. And in a way, this, this phase is longer than, than his more famous phase, probably, um, mm -hmm. um, in, the, in the 70s. So I think when people um, think of Mike Oldfield and saying he, um, as we discussed this before, he lost his way, I think it's, that's ironic because actually this phase is more representative of his, of his music in a way than, than the early phase. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like what you know, as we were saying, with platinum, like he's starting to branch out and explore all sorts of um, possibilities and options that he has. Also, as as a kind of like in a in a way, and that's why I still think I, I love his work and his attitude so much. Um, rather than like obviously going for you know the the idea to make a hit record with a couple of exceptions maybe he he was always kind of using or utilizing his wealth mm. um to actually try new things and um so with qe2 um there there are a couple couple things that i find interesting say well as like saying called taurus one two three over those three albums right mm. also there, uh, you can also go by the use of musical instruments, right? Mm -hmm. So the ver the very first time you hear banjo in a Mike Oldfield tune is in Taurus One, mm -hmm. on Two, right? Then you you hear it you hear it on uh, Five Miles Out on Taurus Two, there's a banjo, and um, on um, Crisis you hear the banjo in um, Shadow on the Wall. Hmm. <laughs> as a kind of like rhythm guitar part, which is which is super cool, um, and and you mentioned the vocoder already, which made an, his first the first appearance on QE two, and five months out, and then later on really not so much, right? Yeah. So the reprise of the vocoder sound kind of like um, came in Amar Amarok, the banjo came back in the uh, encore of Tubal Bells mm -hmm. two. Right, moonshine. Yeah. Right. So, um, so I I think that, and maybe you're you're right, you know, because of that. So that this phase maybe spent around a decade or a little more, you know. Whereas the first seven years, right, first seven years, yeah. and then the second phase maybe was almost two times seven, yeah. almost fourteen years, uh -huh. going up to <laughs> like ninety four, right. Um, Isn't seven years the, the the cell renewal cycle? It is like that, and I, I sort of uh, like looking at yeah. uh, processes in those um, with those yeah. seven with that seven year framework. Um, yes, I mean, um, so if you like, okay, so some things I can say here. There are two pieces on QE two, which are obvious. Um, developments of music that he owned had played live before the album was released, and this is this is super interesting. So, for example, um, Mirage, the track Mirage, mm -hmm. is a development of the middle section of the track Platinum, 
um, you only kind of like realize when you listen to the live version of it, which is um, the, mm. the the live recording which comes with the deluxe edition of of Platinum. There is actually the full backing track, let's say, like without mm -hmm. the melody um, of Mirage inserted into Platinum. Uh, so that comes from that. And so, and like, okay, where does Taurus, Taurus, the Taurus theme, the Taurus idea come from? It's actually a development of the opening section of Tubular Bells, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. um, you can hear that the Napworth, uh, in the Napworth version, you can hear that they, they uh, take the Tubular Bells opening theme and turn it into 4-4. And uh, I think Tim Cross um, is kind of like playing this little variation of that theme. And yes, it is, in fact, that which is the opening section of the, the, the main theme of the Taurus pieces. And I think it's, it becomes more obvious if I listen to the bass. I think it's, um, to me, I always hear it in the bass. Yeah, yeah, it's <clears> the, it's the, but it's, but it's, every, it's everything. It's everything. Yeah. So, and, and then again, you could say, yeah, there's also a development of the beginning of Platon, because Platon was also mm -hmm. a variation of the beginning of That's Platon. how I see it as well. Yes, yes. And then um, I like that the way that he has used the theme in Taurus 2 on Fatima's Out is that mm -hmm. it is the, the climax of the little song, um, the deep, deep sound. Yeah. Um, and 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 sort of like not really kind of like um, bringing it back as a main theme, but as sort of like a conclusion within a bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Picture. And here, uh, Taurus One really has some interesting, really super interesting features for me. So, for example, like as a as a musician myself, and sort of like a musicologist when it comes to analyzing music, um, I I kind of like like to um, kind of understand how my composes, what the complexity level is, let's say, mm -hmm. of things he does. And he has certain high points in the complexity of his work. And one um, one is um, going to be Mount Tidy on uh, Five Months Out, for example. But in Taurus 1, there's actually one of the most complicated and really nonsensical, musically, nonsensical in, this, in, the, in, a, in a historical context, a section of, like, like really like the most complex that he's ever written is in Taurus One. And uh, I find that fascinating because the album like does not really um, communicate that mm. on a whole. It has that this really, I have to say, amazing sort of like transparent, synthetic, mm. um, almost plasticky, mm -hmm kind of sound with, with this amazing, um, uh, you know, how should I say, combination or even connection of acoustic and um, electronic elements yep. where like it took me years to actually like realize something that there is, there, there's acoustic guitar on Mirage. I mean, it's super obvious, but like when I was starting out, like it, it really sounded so uh, alien, this combination of of a brass section and uh, drum machines and uh, synthesizers, yeah. you know, like um, Tim Cross, who also plays a big role in the in the live band of the time, mm -hmm. and um, who brought in, I guess, <coughs> the Taurus bass pedal, yes, which plays a big role on this record, like and so like Taurus, like maybe there's even like a 
you know, a connection there. We don't know. Mike is Mike is a Taurus. I, I, I think like, it's pretty obvious that yeah. it's that he's playing the, that exact pedal on that track. Yes. And there is actually a Taurus one, and then there is a Taurus two pedal, yeah. um, which came out exactly at that time. Okay. <laughs> so the Taurus one was, I think, in 1980, uh -huh. and the Taurus two came out in 81. The Taurus three came out in 2010, I think. So that oh. one is, seems to be there. <laughs> yeah, Taurus three, the track is also very different. It's very different, yes. 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 So. And there is, um, and I should mention, there is um, a British, famous British engine, an airplane engine, which is called Taurus 2. Okay. Um, which I don't think is a um, coincidence. I think it's probably a coincidence, but I think it's something he was probably aware of and which he probably, some of the things he could have loved, these, um, um, mm -hmm. sort of this, this, um, these coincidences. Yes, yeah, yeah, of course. Which which is this passage you mentioned, which you think is so complex and um, almost to the point of being? It's the it's the third section. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, like we have the the Taurus kind of theme with yeah. with the um, <clears throat> which is sort of like a combination of of three different melodies. The first one, the mandolin melody, um, that one doesn't really make a um, reappearance anywhere in an obvious way. Also, it's kind of it's door. It's in the Dorian mode for those who are inter interested mm -hmm. in that, which is rarely Mike actually rarely uses it. But he's I know that he's very aware of it because he sometimes in live versions changes um, the modality of of his music, mm -hmm. right? But um, so it's it's that Dorian thing and um, the pentatonic bass line and the the melody that Maggie Riley sings, and then. Um, like as we've discussed about um, incantation, where he's like moving things around the circle of fifth, he kind of like keeps doing that, but he stays within, uh, you know, three steps. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't doesn't go further than three. And and so if you like overlapping three pentatonic scales, you get like this this. Um, what that basically does is like you know if you're just transposing stuff up in fifth yeah. and down in fifth, um, you get sort of like um, very amb ambiguous movement so that means you can go between those three chords and it's like the same thing that um, um, blues does mm -hmm. right so and and so it's kind of ambiguous it stays within the within the same home base but you could always feel any one of those tonalities as the one chord and mm -hmm. and that that's sort of like he takes advantage of that and so that first section is followed up by this beautiful simple yes. melody right and um, which is also one of like kind of like an overlooked gem somehow. I think it's the most one of the most gorgeous. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievably great, right? Like, and and so he's using like the most basic musical elements there to to create something so powerful. And then the section after that, which is um, rhythmically kind of like I think it's in thirteen or something. So. You could, if you think of it, like you know, okay, what has he done before? Like incantations, we had the eleven, mm -hmm. and then here he goes to thirteen. Interesting, right? And but it's in a in this tribal groove setting, mm. and you don't you don't hear it as an odd time signature, mm. and it's it's really fascinating. And then he has like these 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 changes and this melodic development, which is very much. For lack, really, like a lack of a better description, like the most jazz hmm. he ever went, right? 
So, and with these, these parallel shifting of, of chords and stuff like that. And it's really, it's really um, so incredibly fascinating, this whole construction and, and this, also this, like, this thinking more in terms of like musical blocks where then suddenly there's like a unison phrase, mm -hmm. which is sort of like, you could say like, a, has a sort of a medieval feel. Mm -hmm. And then it goes back to the vocoder um, like solo vocoder on top of a rhythm section. Yeah. And, and it's really, really, really special, this track. And I think the very first fade out ever yes. on his records. Do you think that something followed that in the studio? It's, I, I just, I think it's perfect the way it is. I also think if it, it, if it had gone on for long, it would have been really interesting to see where it would have gone. I think, I think that, um, well, I, what do I know? I don't know anything. But the uh, Taurus One and the track QE2, they connect, they would have connected perfectly. There is, I don't think yes. there wouldn't even have to be anything in between. Um, I thought about that know, as well. And, and, and now I'll just, I have never checked really, but playing it back in my head now, the ending of uh, Taurus One at the beginning of QE2, I think they would just connect. I would love to hear that from maybe David Henschel. Maybe he would know. I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm, sh I'm sure he, he knows. It's a, it's a, it, I don't, I think the fade out ha has a certain quality which fits this particular album also, but that is a different discussion. I think it, it, it seeks beautifully into, um, Shiba. And, um, which of course the, the, the theme is already introduced in Taurus one. That's why I love Taurus one so much. It seems like an opening to this entire journey. That is the next 10 dec um, 10 years, but the Shiba thing is already in there. Yes. Um, but, um, it seems a bit like an early fade out. I, I just thought I think it could have gone on for, for a little bit longer. Yeah, I mean, in, in a way, the, the, that theme, which is the, the, at the end of Taurus One, which is the theme of, or one of the themes of QE2, um, is sort of like the kind of thing that just keeps going forever. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's also like one of these potential things that could modulate all the time, right? And end up in any key and any tonality. So, and that's why I feel like probably it was conceived those two pieces were actually one at some point. Yeah, I thought about it as well, because yeah. especially I think that just in my personal opinion, I think that the title track doesn't really sit that well where it is on the second side. I just, I think the second side has a different, it, 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 it has a different feeling than the other tracks on the second side. I don't know, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I agree. And it's, it's kind of an album of miniatures, you could say which would be one way to describe that album. Would be one way of seeing it. I, yes. I, I probably see it differently, but, but I'd also see it. I think it, it's both. Somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, and I don't mean that in, a, in any mm. bad way. It's just um, like a collection of miniatures um, in the sense that pieces are also short, <clears throat> right? So um, Shiba, for example, is sort of, is sort of the proto a prototype for, um, yes. for an instrumental song that was still using the voice, mm -hmm. right? Um, with a very clear, just, just A and B sections, there's nothing else. Mm -hmm. um, and, and sort of like this, this, and in a way, I mean, like we, we hardly ever talk about, well, we sometimes do Mike as a pioneer, but like the combination of the electronic drums with the acoustic drums, that is really super special 
at especially at that time like the combination of those sounds and only one two three years later um stuff like that was all over the place but in 1980 like the this sort of like combination of these warm analog um synthetic sounds um with 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 uh and in this case like um uh, phil collins hmm. right playing the drums like the highly produced drum sound that's really really special a kind of i don't want to even say it but kind of out of place but makes it that's what makes it so great mm -hmm. i can talk about that at more length later because um i of course i came from electron i come mainly from electronic music and but but qe2 to me has always felt like almost like an electronic album even though it isn't i think it's really at the cusp because of course Platinum, in a way, was his uh, love affair with disco. And disco sa can sound, especially at its peak, like, like it's um, the, the end point where he was going to at the end of the 70s, it can sound like electronic music. Uh, 1975, uh, Donna Summer, um, Love to Love You Baby. It sounds like a piece of electronic music, especially with all these long passages where the rhythm just gets looped. Mm -hmm. But it's not electronic music, it's just the band playing. And they're yeah. splicing everything together and, and looping it. Um, but and disco music then turned in, then then took that direction. It actually became electronic music, mm -hmm. and this is where it is. But of course, it, he doesn't actually go full um, synth pop. Um, but he actually combines it with his own stuff, which is That's, what makes it so unique. Uh, and actually, a lot of his folk kind of uh, yeah. sensibilities make an appearance in this in this strange new environment yeah. let's say right that's that's why this passage you mentioned um the second passage of taurus one is so unique to me mm -hmm. where he actually comes out from the um this this rocking this rock section and he goes and it's just just the uh, the drum machine and mm -hmm. a few um, acoustic elements mm -hmm. and you can imagine the drum machine not being there and it would be a classic mike oldfield piece but it's there and it it just it opens up this space, and and I think it really it's it's just a foil for him for him to weave his lines around. Exactly, and, and that's that's also kind of like um, related to the production techniques of the time. Yeah. Uh, actually, in um, Five Miles Out, um, the track Taurus Two has the drum machine running through from the beginning to the end, mm -hmm. right? And and uh, with that high pitched, almost like metronome. Yeah. Uh, I think we mentioned that before, actually, at some point already. Y you know. Um, what was fascinating to me to read now was that QE2 actually was the number one selling album in Germany yeah. uh, in uh, 1980 or 80, 80 yeah. probably the year I of think its release. 80, 81, right? Um, the release was in 80. So that's why, that's why, um, well, we will have to look that up yeah. again. But anyway, like just, just the fact that it was such a, it was only a number 12 yeah. in the charts, but it was the best selling album of the year. Um, and you know, like I have uh, a memory now of uh, actually Manuel Göttsching of Ashra Tempo mm -hmm. um, talking. He was he was a guest on a, a radio show, Schallben, Schallwelle. Schallwelle. Yeah. Olaf Zimmermann. No, 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 no. Uh, Winfried Tenkel, Tenkel. Oh, okay. Schwingungen, Schwingungen. Sorry, Schwingungen was the name of the show, which I um, started listening to around like maybe mm -hmm. eighty-two or something. And Manuel Gottschen was there as a guest, and um, they were talking about like Oldfield, and like how um, much of like an influence—not just influence, like the, you know, like 
but Manuel was actually aiming to be like Mike Oldfield. Can you believe that? And he actually mentioned QE2 as one of his favorite, favorites of the time. Yes. So what that means, what you just said, is he was touring this album extensively in Germany. Yeah, there were, I think, 10 to 15 dates. I can't remember. He played in Münster, where I lived at the time. Uh, not the time, but I lived mm -hmm. um, later on. And um, Frankfurt, really the, the entire um, country. And what it means... The that tour was in 81, right? The album was released in the... In okay, so, but 80s. it was... No, no, just, 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 yeah. just to, to... It was the best-selling album of 81 then. And yes. it means, essentially, that everyone who visited that uh, one of his concerts bought the album. Yeah. That's what it means. It yes. must have been yes. um, such a... And, and I think what, is in, what was interesting to me is that in the UK, it was not a big success. And his um, even though he would continue to sell well, I mean, Crisis obviously sold well everywhere, mm -hmm. but he continued to sell well there. His, um, his, his fan base shifted from the UK to, to mainland Europe. We talked about Spain last time, mm -hmm. but especially to Germany. Um, Discovery was huge in Germany as well. Um, and um, I checked QE2, wasn't huge in Spain, interestingly enough. Yeah, I saw that as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, there is, a, I mean, there's been lots of talk about how, um, how this was a commercial, so some, some think it's a an effort to become, become more commercial. Um, I just think it's, He, he clearly recognized that the times were changing and he was interested in what was happening around him. And um, I think also the, this idea of shorter tracks, um, I think it's something he did do consciously. But what is, what is so great about Kiwi 2 is that he's, he's, this is an album of shorter tracks, but they, but they are connected. And there is, there is lots of um, use, utilization of themes across different tracks. And actually, mm -hmm. I think if you edit the first side just slightly differently, you actually have a complete long piece. To me, the first side of Q2 is more coherent than the first side of Platinum in a way. It's, I feel, oh, yeah. you know, there's just in mm -hmm. the way the pieces flow, um, it just feels like, um, this feels like, a like one big piece, just presented as a suite. Yes, yeah, exactly. And like a piece like um, like conflict, which is which yeah. is a suite, yeah, suite of pieces, right? I was surprised so many people dislike that piece. I think it's amazing. Oh, it's yeah, it's incredible. It's just an incredible composition. It's so cool, um, you know, on so many levels. Like I say, he brings in this, and and that's really maybe like one of the really first big shifts. Um, where he's using like this idea of unison melodies, which I mean, I have to like, obviously on um, Jubilee Bells, you had one unison section, which mm -hmm. is the, the the big bass section, uh, like five, mm -hmm. six minutes into the, the the first part, right? The first side, um, but like this, this unison runs, that is really special. And then combined with sections, which are again, like fully like polyphonic or homophonic, um, um, the, the use of, of the keyboard player as an orchestra, which is David Cross's influence here, right? And as you say, like the bass pedal um, as, as, no. as a musical instrument um, that is sort of like taken into consideration for the, for the composition of the parts, like where there is like on conflict, there's bass guitar and mm -hmm. synth bass, right? Um, Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's a, 
And I think she wanted to mention another piece which was um, special to you on the album. Well, um, you see, like special, like it's all special. Um, I love Mirage a lot. There is the live mm. version on the, the complete compilation, which is utterly mm. magical. And, you know, I ended up uh, playing a version of that piece with, uh, with Stickman. Mm. We played that for a few years. So uh, Mirage is, is totally magical. Just this, like, again, Mike um, developing his style to go, like where people were already calling him minimal, he went mm -hmm. more into that direction. Like he said, okay, let's just take one measure of music, right? And make a composition of that simply by shifting the harmonies around. That's what Mirage is, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's, I, f I find it fascinating how he went like more minimal, um, never, but never simple. That's, that's sort of like the interesting thing about it. Um, and then there is like maybe my, one of my favorite short pieces of his, which is Molly, which is the mm. lullaby for his firstborn daughter, um, which is actually, and again, like, I don't know if it does these things on purpose, but it's sort of like, it's an exercise in four part harmony. Like it's actually four parts mm. playing polyphonic B. And it's a perfect, you could sing it perfectly with the choir. Mm. Um, it's so beautiful. And so, um, yeah, it's so moving. Um, and just, just like, um, in terms of the uh, arrangement, again, using the vocoder as a, as a vocal lead instrument and, uh, like his, his very unique bass tone, which is very, very, uh, how should I say, unassuming on this record. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like you would, nowadays you would call it thin sounding, but it's not thin. It's sort of like a stylistic choice, um, where the bass kind of like makes an appearance in a bigger, in a bigger structure, just like when he introduces bass guitar or when, you know, mm -hmm. uh, on uh, the finale of Tubal Bells Sign One, yeah. uh, like there you have bass guitars going and then you have a bass guitar playing a melody on top, yeah. right? And he, he sort of like, kind of like plays with this, like how the music is staggered in space and how the instrumentation kind of like goes from low instruments to high instruments and kind of like reverses the roles somehow. Um, also like foreground and background stuff. And, and, um, this is, um, the first album where you could see in the production, a lot of, uh, attention to detail also for the panning for instruments. Yes. Like, like you have, um, like the, in the beautiful, like second section of Taurus one, the beautiful melody where you have that list, uh, question and answer thing. And you have the, the answers like, like three notes on the right side, three on the left. And then it, mm -hmm. it kind of like doesn't follow yes. any 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 fixed pattern you can see like every note is placed differently somehow and it's just so beautiful and and sort of start and here you're right again sort of like starts his second the second phase creative phase where he is using the studio really as a musical instrument and where the the music kind of like relies on the balance of the of the sounds very much and the the panning and stuff right balance is, is a big, big factor in, in orchestration composition, as you know, like, yeah, you can write, you can write a harmony 
Um, but that if the harmony is too loud, it becomes the lead, right? And this is this is something where he's always, I find, in those um, 80s, well, I mean, throughout his whole career, but like he really found like the perfect balance, really, um, of of um, bringing the right thing into the focus of the listener, yeah. while a lot of the complexity kind of like stays hidden yes. uh, to the casual listener. I agree. I think it would be really interesting to talk to David Henschel for us yep. about his role on the album. Yeah. I've thought about this a lot because I agree that this album has a unique sound. It has it, it's, it has a very different sound than um, Five Miles Out in Crises. And although it comes earlier, mm. if you listen to it today, it sounds more modern than, the, than those two albums. Yes. Which is, of course... Well, more modern, you could say more futuristic. More futuristic or more of our current time somehow. Somehow what happens on this mm -hmm. album seems to be more relevant today than mm -hmm. what than the albums which follow, mm -hmm. which maybe doesn't have to do with the music being more modern. But but I just um, this almost this orchestral electronica idea mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which he pioneers here, um, in which he doesn't for whatever reason doesn't come back to until the nineties. That, that beautiful passage we've been talking about, that could almost have been something on the songs of this nerd. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, it has that feeling. And, um, and you know, that's, that's part of what I mean with him going minimal. Yeah. Like the idea that he just kind of like, um, from like this idea of a, like where some people would say pompers or blown up kind of stuff, he goes to just a chord and a melody. Yeah. Like not even a bass part, just, just a chord and a melody. What, which he then kind of, as you say, kind of like reintroduces yeah. the songs of distant earth, right? But yes, you are absolutely right. That that kind of style makes its first appearance here. And the album does sound great. And it's interesting that David Henschel, um, he just actually, he was probably chosen because he'd just been super successful with Genesis. Yes. And I don't know how familiar you are with these albums. I'm not that super familiar with them, um, but they're very, they were, um, they were always heavily criticized for their sound. Mm -hmm. um, and many people still today would argue that some of those sound horrible. I don't think that's true. I think they have a, of the sound of their time mm -hmm. and it's somehow that has an atmosphere which is unique. But mm -hmm. if I'm totally honest, I have the suspicion that, that Mike mixed this album and it didn't, wasn't David Henschel who did it because it sounds very, very different. Um, if you if you go back to the to the vinyl record, which is really I think you have to do with this album, mm. um, I think the the remaster isn't bad, um, mm. but actually even the the flat the flat transfer CD, which I also have, sounds better, and the vinyl sounds so much, but it has more space. Mm. It has le less, um, just maybe just slightly less analytical um, sound, but mm. it has so much more space. Which the for example the drum computer. Mm -hmm. um, which I can talk about more if if, if, if that's of interest. But the the the, the, the CR seventy eight has this it come it has this unique and instantly recognizable sound, but it has a lot of space um, and has a lot of punch. And the snares really cut through. And um, some there's people who think it's the, it hasn't been bettered. Um, actually, it also has a unique swing. And I think you need that vinyl. Um, the vinyl to actually bring that out, or maybe just a better um, remaster on CD. Wasn't that, I, I think it was actually not remastered um, or mastered at the time. 
I think all of these were not mastered. Platinum wasn't mastered. It was mastered for Airborne in the US, but not, but not the original. Okay. So I think it is actually Mike's mix. Yes. Um, so it's really him working. And, and, and I think he chose Henschel probably because he, he was one of the few producers who was both familiar with working with orchestra and, um, and rock and pop music and soul music. He had lots of different. And he was a, a keyboard player. And he was a keyboard player, yeah. Right, so, which at that time was like a really big thing in the studio to sort of like, um, like understand how you can sync up yeah. uh, like an arpeggiator or whatever, I don't know, like the, the mm. because that was pre-MIDI times. Yes. There, there was no way to easily kind of like connect things and have them sync up. So, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know, um, much about David Henschel at all, yeah. interestingly enough. But I remember, uh, and like maybe I remember it wrong, but that he also produced an Andy Summers album at some point. I think so. He also produced TV Wonder at some point. Really? Uh, well, some I, didn't, I didn't know. Although I had to look up how much of it, but um, uh -huh. although I think actually the, the Genesis time was probably his peak um, yeah. in terms yeah. of commercial success. Yes, yes. And I mean, like, I, um, here's something else. So you said like maybe the producer was chosen, blah, 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 for whatever reason. Uh, we don't know, we don't even know how much of it was Mike's personal choice or like uh, a committee thing with a, with, a, with a record company with Virgin. Like uh, um, it's quite possible um, that there were suggestions um, mm -hmm. from, I mean, even, maybe even from friends, like, mm -hmm. you know. You know. Um, the the choice to include two cover songs mm. right is kind of odd yes um and i don't know if we've talked about this in this format already but um there's always been the interest of by publishers to push certain songs uh, to be covered by successful artists to kind of like have some sort of some sort of cross-pollination you could say mm -hmm. and also just to make money right and um, even though I believe that Mike really loves Arrival. Yes. Right, I'm sure, because it sounds like an old tune in the, the first place. The original sounds more like an old tune than his cover version. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, and um, obviously, like, like even being a, like a fan of the, was it Hank Marvin, right? Yes, the Shadows. Yeah. So um, that, that choice of like Wonderful Land is Wonderful Land is an extremely wonderful composition. It's so cool. And just to see that Mike kind of like sees these things, knows these things, and kind of like, um, you know, decides at this point in his career to kind of like take another step away from him being the the main guy. Mm -hmm. Again, it doesn't matter if it was completely conscious or deliberate or, you know, or some other forces were in play. But just like uh, in hindsight, it's such a, it's such a beautiful statement. I have sort of an idea about how this, about the genesis of this album. Well, genesis, oh, yeah. sorry. <laughs> um, I don't know if you agree or not, but this album, this, so first of all, the entire 80s period is badly documented. It, through in, not in interviews, in, in, in his autobiography, mm. it's, it has a few pages, that's it. Even Crisis is hardly mentioned at all. Mm -hmm. um, the interviews at the time, for whatever reason, are not particularly detailed. We, we don't know much about how these pieces came about. 
Um, we do know that Kiri 2 was recorded very in a very short span of time. It was recorded in the summer of that year and finished um, sometime in the autumn. And then I think in between two tours, probably. Um, it seems like to me that the difference between Platinum and this one is Platinum was really, he was working on that material live a lot and then it came on the record and was constantly changed about. Um, with this one, I think it was recorded after tour, but with few exceptions, you've mentioned some of the pieces which were developed on tour, but I think this is one in a period of touring, but not necessarily using material which was representative of what he was doing live. Um, there were certain like the technological developments. He was he was playing Omadon with um, with the with the rhythm computer, for example, yes. and stuff like that. But but other than that, it seems to be different. And I think to me, it always seems like a bit of a sketchbook in the sense that he was there was lots of ideas going through in his mind, and I think he wanted to put them down quickly, and then maybe return to them later in more detail. So this album has sort of this this maybe why why some of the pieces are short, because he presents them as the original ideas. I think Tupia Bells, there were also lots of smaller pieces, and then he seeks them into one big thing. Uh -huh. And um, and here, it's he leaves the ideas for what they are, and then puts them together, which 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 is why this has such a unique charm. Um, each of the pieces has sort of a, um, the typical build-up. I think one of the great things about this one is that you get lots of finales on, on QE2. You don't get one big finale at the end of a long piece. You get lots of smaller finales. There's lots of build-ups to do big things, um, but it's within short periods, like shorter tracks. Um, and actually, he sees about the cover version of of um, Arrival. He said that at the end of the period of recording QE2, he came a couple of pieces short. I don't know what the other one is, but. Arrival was one, and he asked Simon Draper, mm -hmm. "What would he recommend? What is, would there be a piece he could uh, he could cover?" And Simon Draper, according to Mike's recollection at the time, suggested Arrival, oh. and that apparently is how it got on there. Um, yeah, so it fits beautifully at the end of it sits great at the end of the first side, but um, <clears throat> still, Alba would like it's an it's sort of an unusual choice and. Um, I think it it really maybe he wouldn't have gone for it if he had had enough material, but probably the time that was like maybe the, the tour was coming up, maybe he wanted to finish it. It was recorded quickly, and I think it has this sort of um, there's an energy in this album. I think it, many see it as sort of a nice and pleasant album. It's an energy. I see the energy in every single piece. There's so much positivity. You see, if we if we really um, assume that maybe Taurus One and QE Two were one piece, yes, then that would have made one side, mm -hmm. right? Because right now it's like 17, 18 minutes, yeah. like those two pieces together, which is perfect yeah. for one side. Um, and maybe that's what the original plan was. Um, so in in a way, you know, we always well, we kind of we say that the the this idea of like one long piece per side and then the shorter pieces on the other started with five months out a little bit, yeah. but actually not really with uh, with Crisis and then was repeated. And again, not exactly uh, no. with Discovery, but um, but then repeated again with Islands. Um, 
sort of like it, the start of that is already QE2, but it ended up being edited and cut apart. And, um, and that maybe was the, um, the reason why the cover pieces or a second cover mm -hmm. version, like you say, a rival kind of like made, made its appearance in this. I mean, like if you, if you can, you can think of, and this is what I like about, it, you can think of this album as sort of like, you really could think of it as short of ideas, yes. but it's not, No, <clears throat> it's not. And like these, like, like, um, a piece like conflict so dense in a way mm -hmm. right um also like uh, conflict when it was played live they played it twice mm -hmm. right? it was so short i mean it's only like two minutes 50 seconds or something on the album yeah. um but in life they played it twice and so the first round they played like the full-on version and then the second time around they played a quiet round mm -hmm. of it which is so cool um, um but anyway you, you know Mirage, like I say, is almost like a sequence of piece. You just push a button and everything moves up a fifth or, you know, or a minor third or yeah. stuff like that. <clears throat> um, each, each, in, in a way, each, each piece has its, like, and uh, like Kelt is, for example, is like another miniature, which then has like this incredibly beautiful guitar solo. And which is actually like the, the first, very first guitar solo of Mike's that I have ever learned hmm. to play on touch guitar. <laughs> Funnily enough. Um, and I've always seen that as a precursor to, to Voyager. It sounds, always has that sound. Yes, but for me, it's, it really, um, it, there's something funny about it. Like when it starts with the, 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 the intro, um, you just hear one, one note and it's a synth. Or bass guitar, like you don't mm -hmm. really know if it's a combination of the two, and it sounds slightly out of tune mm -hmm. to my ear. And then the, the 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 string synth comes in for the second round of the intro, let's say, and it suddenly defines like the key center. So mm -hmm. for me, it's always like my ear shifts the key, like the experience of the of the root note, like mm -hmm. when the string synth comes in, and then you have the the, the, again, like this, the whole album doesn't have a single um, English word on it. It's all just syllables mm. uh, sung through, uh, you know, either the vocoder or in the case of Maggie Riley singing here yep. um, with, with a clear voice. Um, also, almost always with a harmony part. Mm -hmm. um, in that case, it's actually reminiscent also of the chanting on Amadon. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? Especially with the African drums, which yeah. is that Mike Fry actually playing on this album? Yes, it, yes. It's Mike Fry it's and both Fry. Yeah. yeah, okay. So, so like you really, you kind of like get the sound of the, of the um, <laughs> cow skin kind of like drums, mm -hmm. which in the, the way that they're produced though, and this is, this is so awesome because yeah, you're absolutely right now. Now I see the connection also with Amarok. So where you have like the um, the Boran, like the yeah. Irish drum, right? Or whatever I say Irish, like mm -hmm. I don't know what, what its origin is. Uh, so the frame drum with the African drum and the combination of, and the way that the African drums are produced, like with a lot of high end, yeah. uh, top end, it sounds almost like a Boran mm -hmm. sometimes. 
it's uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, that is always interested me. That yeah. connection. Yes, um, I've actually seen the opening lead melody, the main melody of the opening section, as a, as a as a reference to Omadon. Maybe not like super obvious, but I've always sort of thought I always thought the, the opening section is a fuses Omadon. Oh, opening of Taurus One. Of Taurus One. Yeah. Yeah. The the vocal melody. No, the the instrumental melody. The instrumental one. The med mandolin. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow, uh, somehow, I, I know. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's true. It's true because, yeah, yeah, because that's the da 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 on Omadon. Yeah. yeah, kind of like a minor, minor key inversion of uh, yeah. There's yeah, also these yeah. these these kinds of things, of course. Anyway, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, also, the fact that it's Dorian again, saying that could be maybe that it's actually really an inversion. Of something else, I've never thought about it that way. But you're you you just gave me an idea there. It would be interesting also maybe to talk about the musicians. Um, you know a lot about them, and they're they're super interesting because this is at the time. I mean, maybe we don't think of it that way. Maybe because it's all also from a different time. But these are like top notch musicians. Yes, and you know, like when you were saying uh, earlier that like when the production started and like everything is sort of like uh, instrument based also like which instruments mm -hmm. were used for the instrumentation. I think, and I already said that for platinum. Now we have to go a step further and think of the musicians as instruments. And this is exactly kind of what's happening here on this record because like. If you have like Morris Pert, who is like, like one of the I don't know, like the Holy Grail kind yeah. of musicians, right? As a percussionist and composers, yeah, right, of contemporary classical music, having Morris Pert in the studio uh, gives you more than just a sound. Hmm. It gives you it gives you a musical opinion. It gives you an attitude, right? And that that has been. Uh, just just kind of like utilized, I think. Also, I think Morris Pert is, <clears throat> you say opinion, but I think it's also, this, this. these are two people who prefer to play rather than to talk. Pert was, I don't think there, there's any interviews with him. He was, he was one of the top five drummers of his time. Mm. Um, but I think he really communicated through the music. I mean, just like, I mean, I think that he, he was one of these guys who was actually a percussionist, mm -hmm. and I think that's how he was educated. Yeah. But him playing drums, at that time, like the feel of it, just it's just mm -hmm. it's just so heavy. Also, like it's a kind of heavy that yeah. that you don't really you hardly ever hear from a drummer. Mm. It's a it's I don't know I don't know how to put it like. Because you know that, that classical musicians, they they sort of like maybe like the understanding, like I'm generalizing here, but you know what I mean, of of rock music. Mm -hmm. But then you have a musician like, like yeah, you know that here was Mike Fry and Morris Pert, and then a year later it was Pierre Merlin and Morris Pert. Unbelievable. Yeah. This this. Uh, Combination. Yeah. Also, of course, and then add Phil Collins to the equation. Actually, I think his drumming is um, is incredible on that first piece. It, yeah, it's awesome. easy to actually think it's not that special, and why would he actually even have to be on there? But I think he's actually fantastic. It's fantastic, and uh, on top of just him being the player, it also comes with the sound. It comes with the sound, yes. Yes, and that that has been that is like the big factor here, 
and just like um, especially at the, the Sheba when the drums come in at Sheba, like the, the how it lifts up the whole totally. the whole music, right? Yeah. It's incredible. I wanted to, um, by the way, there's one passage I wanted to quote from the book because um, yeah. to me it would have been really interesting to hear about that collaboration, um, if it was one. Um, I actually, Phil Collins played, um, I read in Phil Collins' um, autobiography that he actually, with Genesis, they would play tubular bells um, in, before their concerts yes. with one of the music they had on tape. Yes. Um, and they really liked it. Mm -hmm. um, he doesn't talk about working on QSU at all in that book, yeah. but um, he does mention that. Um, and so Phil Collins at the time, he was, he was huge. I mean, Genesis had just had their number one album, first, I think, number one with Duke. Um, so they were really big. And, um, and what, this is what Mike Alford writes in his book about um, that session. I had a few guests on there, like Phil Collins, who came and did some drums. Mm -hmm. And that's it. <laughs> that's all we're going to get um, about that. Um, I mean, probably... It, um, he doesn't even talk about some of the other people at all, so it's more than that. But um, I think it's it's probably I think it's an intense time with live and studio work bleeding into each other. Um, maybe that's also why the album to me feels really fresh. It feels really fresh. Hey, when was in the air tonight released? It was a little bit later. It was, uh, it was 1981 or 82, but it was later than this one. So uh, when he came to the studio, he, Collins had just... Says, well, it was in 81. But now, like, okay, now if you think about it, those sounds in, in Sheba, yeah. those are the sounds of In the Air Tonight. Yeah, well, he's using the same drum computer. It's a yes, there is yeah. the drum computer yeah. and also the, the gated uh, snare and yes. stuff. Even though it's not as gated as it is on uh, face value. Yeah, yeah, it's not. But still, you you can already hear the tendency and like the the fidelities of the yeah. of the parts and how they kind of, as I say, lift up the energy of a song. Totally. Yeah. I think it's really that that machine is. Um, I think the funny thing about the CR seventy eight is that it actually has a swing, a real one. Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of it's I mean it's shortly before the eight oh eight and nine oh nine came. But it's hard to imagine what this would have sounded like had he gone with that. There's actually um, by Korg. There's a drum computer which was in, um, which was on a few productions, a little bit earlier, which is the KR55. It's, for example, on Joe Jackson's. Um, mm -hmm. What's it called? Um, this big Joe Jackson thing. I'm going to look. This the big hit. Well, it's one of Stepping out or uh, stepping out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that has the KR55, and it sounds a lot more, a lot more futuristic. Actually, than 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 the CR seventy eight, but it doesn't have a swing. Yeah. And um, I don't know anything about that with that swing swing function or whatever. But I I remember like very like the very first time I saw it on stage with Mike. Yeah. I was sitting next to him next to the keyboard where he had the vocoder, right? Yeah. And yeah. He doesn't actually do that much with it. It's it's he would have. I think that's interesting because Phil Collins, for example, to get the in the air tonight beat, you have to do more with the machine. Mm -hmm. Even though it's really stoic and monot like that's what Collins wanted. He wanted the machine to do more of the rhythm so that he could do less or other things, he could less with the piano. Mm -hmm. That's why in the air tonight has this serene and, and otherworldly feeling mm -hmm. because the rhythm machine does takes over some of the stuff that he would have had to do with other instruments, and so we can leave more of it open. Mm -hmm. um, but to get there, you have to actually program it. 
So the Roland, which, which Mike also uses, was the first drum machine rather than the first rhythm computer. Yeah. Uh, but he doesn't actually do that much with it. I think he really wants to wants it to be super minimal, as you said before. Yes, yes. The, 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 the rhythmically interesting stuff happens still with the acoustic instruments. Yeah, 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 for sure. But it's it's that it's that combination that makes that makes that uh, greatness and yeah. like uh, five miles out is really that album where like I said where it's I think that at that point it's the Lindrum though mm -hmm. um, where that that concept is taking like a step further uh, yeah but anyway like I I think that um, sort of like this this organic quality of the late. 70s technology is is very much present here still with that with this album q2 yeah. um you know while at the same time you already have like i said like the fidelity of of the mid early or let me you know mm -hmm. like maybe 83 84 85 and i keep saying that i i think that like really the sound of the of this musical eras uh, is very much defined by by the equipment available, mm. right? And so, yeah, this compute rhythm CR seventy eight is um, <clears throat> not like as you say, like in the live performance, they used it as a metronome and nomadon. Yeah, yeah let's, and then leave it playing on its own. Yes, yes. I, I actually have um, um, a bootleg of the um, show in nineteen eighty two that I was. Mm. Therefore, and there is actually like a whole like four bar phrase of just the drum machine before they start the solo, the drum solo. Yeah. And, and I, I sampled it at some point and turned it into a track, which was never released. Uh, but yeah. There's a, there's a great emulation of, of that machine. Um, it still works today, mm -hmm. which is amazing. Mm -hmm. To me, it's interesting that he's choosing um, Roland a lot. Um, and that says, I think, a lot about his choices because um, there were probably more like like Roland as a company was was founded to make the sort of it was intended to cater to amateur musicians not to professionals that's not how it panned out mm -hmm. but but Roland was supposed to be uh, cheaper yeah. and um, simpler but but easy to use and affordable so that was the um, selling point um, and then yeah. it then the company ended up um, influencing the course of history because uh, professional musicians wanted to have it in their music. Well, also, also the this whatever I don't remember the exact name, the SH synth, yes. that Mike used a lot of those presets, yep. and he modified the the sounds by running it through different effects processes and recording at half speed and blah blah <clears> all this all these things. Um, like he has a history with with Roland, but here's something else. I just re recently came across. I don't remember where. I read about Mike owning like a, a MXR flanger or mm -hmm. or phaser pedal or or a device. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I have not really ever, and this is maybe my ignorance, actually heard a flanger or or phaser sound on Mike's albums. This is something mm -hmm. that maybe for some other time we kind of like go through yeah. and try to 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 spot like uses of um, 
electronic devices. Like in in the live situation, he's used the the harmonizer, the Eventide, yes, a lot. But I don't I I don't think I've ever heard it on a on an album. No, and and I find that I find that fascinating. Like because like in '84 uh, he started using the this Gibson synth mm-hmm. um, guitar uh, on Discovery, I think. Um, yeah, you see, like they, yeah. because you were talking about Roland, that's why I came up with this. So so there is a certain kind of technology that kind of seemed to fit into into Mike's vision of what he could use yeah. and then there was something else that really maybe was just something sort of like a a dream in a sense that he would buy get some stuff and then realize oh, it doesn't really work for my mm. for my music also yeah. like because like there's another um, production technique that he hardly ever uses which is um double tracking mm-hmm. um double tracking of of a part to kind of like re you know like i don't i I don't think he's done that much at all, because no. certain, simply it didn't doesn't work or didn't help his music somehow, and and that's why you know that may be like the answer why the the compu rhythm mm-hmm. was the go to machine because it kind of blended in with uh, with the composition. He must have seen something. It came from from Phil Collins. Apparently, that's how he mm-hmm. um, got to know about it. Um, and it's not as prominent as one would, you know, if it's mentioned, um, Oldfield was one of the people who used it. Um, it was used in a lot of productions in those early 80s. Um, it was even used on, on the Blondie piece, um, OMD, famously, and Ola Gay, I think, that, that also uses it. <coughs> um, there's lots of, there were lots of pieces, uh, but, but they do, do use it, use it differently from him. Um, also, for example, this idea of running um, like the, the vocoder, for example, he, I think he, he did own the, the Barge vocoder, which was famously also um, used by Kraftwerk. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know that. Um, but, but actually the one I think he, so that one is another one which he had in, in live use. On the other hand, um, he also owned the, um, the, the VC, I think it's called VC330, um, which was far cheaper by Roland and, and um, Mm-hmm. Um, which has the same effects and which you can also um, use to, for example, vocodize, whatever you want to call it, vocode, for example, um, keyboard instruments. I think Mount Tidy was that done by by hooking it up to a drum machine, uh, sorry, to, to Carl Palmer's drums. Oh, a drum machine, certainly, or like yeah. actually, actually, I think probably the Fairlight. But it's running but, through the um, vocoder. Yes, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah. so that's yeah. something he could do with that machine. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, and and the, the Roland is the machine that was used live. Yeah, right. But the barge is apparently on, on the Montreux, I think. That it's it's really? also on stage. Okay, interesting. Like I I didn't I didn't know that at all. It, there was a, there's only forty of those were ever built. Mm-hmm. So it's it's an interesting choice for him to own. Um, interesting. I really uh, had no no idea. I wonder, um, as like you do, what the role of, of the equipment was. I mean, he, he probably just he bought a lot and then tried out and sold it off again. Um, Did, um, let me just, uh, you have an album here. This, uh, do we have the original credits in here? Because, ah, uh, yes, we do. We do. 
Okay, good. good. So, so like Taurus one, for example, like my coffee plays mandolin, bass, and like here we can go by like also how yeah. they appear in the song, right? Uh, mandolin, bass, guitar, synthesizers, banjo, right? Celtic harp, drum machine, timpani, electric guitars, bass pedals, claptrap, and vocoder. And claptrap is the is the CR. 78, yeah. I think. No, sorry, the clap time is a different one. That's actually, uh, that's just a clap machine. It just, it just gives I, you I, Yeah, I heard about that too, but like when I, when I was um, Googling it, uh, and they write clap uh, trap Roland, it brings up the CR. That's interesting. It's, 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 it's so Simmons clap trap, but... Um, is that the, I mean, like in the, on the live show, they have Morris Perth uh, hit a microphone hmm. and you hear the you hear the, the hmm. electronic drum sound it's a very small piece of equipment so it could maybe be connected to the microphone yeah exactly and, and, then and to, to trigger an electronic drum could sound be. yes and i think that's actually in the the intro of shiba where he does that and there's also the clap trap also is on taurus one of course um at the end like it's, it's it's almost textual it's um, mm -hmm. it's not using a rhythmical way. I, I wonder. It, it does. It does give it a sort of. A, if you if you listen to it on headphones, it gives you a real this really full electroacoustic experience. It's not necessary for the music, maybe, but it's it adds something. Yeah, fresh and. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's interesting to for me to read the these credits here again. So mm -hmm. it says on Taurus one after Mike, um, we have Mike Mike Fry African drums, Phil Collins drums. Uh, Maggie Riley vocals and David Henschel synthesizers, right? And then Sheba, uh, this is also interesting, I've never really realized it's all Mike and Maggie yep. plus Phil Collins, nothing, nobody else. Um, and then Conflict, as I was saying, Tim Cross on the piano synthesizers mm -hmm. um, and Mike only playing electric and bass guitar. And Mike Fry and Morris Perth doing the drums. There was wow. Apparently, sections of the album, like large parts, of it were recorded in his living room. So I think there was a sort of a, a, um, a space because his studio was being rebuilt, but it wasn't finished yet. Uh -huh. And um, that's one story. I don't, as I said, I, I, there's conflicting information, and there's um, um, not a lot of it around anyway. But but. One story I heard is that part, that it was recorded in his living room, which would explain why the interest in in, in having as little um, people playing at the same time, maybe, mm -hmm. and also the interest in electronic instrumentation. Yeah, it's 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 um, strangely um, detailed these these credits yeah, here I agree. And, right so um for example um on shiva it says uh mike office syndromes mm -hmm. interesting right so it was not and and i just found this here um on wonderful land david henschel cs80 which is that yeah famous synthesized steel so cs80 steel drums and synthesized french horn that's interesting. I yeah. Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and you know, uh, both Arrival and Wonderful Land, the two cover mm -hmm. versions, actually have um, have strings, like real strings on yeah. it, and uh, on Arrival a choir. Yeah. yeah. And on the the title track, there's trumpets. 
<clears throat> yeah, that's the the uh, the yeah exactly the brass section, yeah. which is not only on the title track, it's also on Mirage. Mm. Mirage, in a way, is like one of the most futuristic arrangements that you could think of. Like also like this this typical Oldfield thing where there's no bass for a while. Like and there's and, and here like the bass is only one note on the one, a short mm. note on the one, boom. Boom. Mm. Right. It's so cool. Yeah, with that horn section. And uh, I'm wondering if it's the same horn section that was on on platinum. I don't think so. No. I didn't Def check. Definitely that. not. Yeah. No. Horns arranged by David Henschel. Yes, yes. He did the arrangements of the game. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 great. Like in Q Q2 we have um for Mike, we have synthesizers, a double speed guitar, electric guitars, bass guitar, bass pedals, bass drum, mm -hmm. timpani. Interesting that he plays the timpani there because mm -hmm. it's very prominent. Um, tambourine, mandolin, gong, and the bagpipes. Like the the funny thing is that, and I never realized until recently that that lead instrument in Q2 mm -hmm. is, is the bagpipe because it sounds so fake. And yes. Also, it sounds a bit detuned, even though the instrument by nature probably has a slightly yeah, yeah. detuned. Uh, but um, I love the sound, I have to say, in the, but it's really like something you wouldn't really know what it is. It's like so produced and yes. sort of like amplified in such an interesting, mm -hmm. I love it. Um, it's almost like a, yeah, a beyond a synthesized sound. Sort of. Mm, I know what you mean. Yes. Yeah, it's kind of uh, almost like it was virtually created in the machine. Yes. Which, by the way, the the VC three thirty that the vocoder actually has an inbuilt choir, mm -hmm. like vocal vocal samples, which are not sampled from human singers, but actually created through synthesis inside the machine. Okay. And he also uses that. And there's actually something that Vangelis used a lot. Okay. <clears throat> Maybe like um like an ensemble effect or something. Like a chorusing yes. effect or something, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, um, talking about the detail on this record, um, there's you can still hear that there are hardly any sequenced parts, mm -hmm. um, with maybe the exception of the QE2 um, starting mm -hmm. theme, which again is like one of these. Uh, modulating sequences, yeah. right? Like what he did in incantations. Um, and because you can hear the variation, the parts. So for example, the, the, um, the bass um, synth in the beginning of QE2, it's really goes through like beautiful little yeah. phrases and variations and and always a little bit different and like um, it's certainly not quantized or like uh, it's fantastic. And you mentioned that um, that the credits are very specific. Contrast that with um, I think incantations where there are no credits almost at all, like the early albums mm -hmm. lack a lot of credits. Mm -hmm. um, it's also um, from in this period that for the first time actually other people are co-accredited with co-writing the pieces. Of course, and five miles out is more um, 
that that's where it comes in, and then we have it on crises. But that's something which is also new. So this the band there's this lot the, the 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 it's not just he's hiring session musicians to play his music, but he's actually co-writing songwriting with them. And I think um, on the title track is also co-write right with with Cross. Is it? I think so. I think the one of the like it was originally uh, a two-part piece. There was uh, on the original vinyl release, the early pressings. It's actually a QE two part one, QE two part two. And um, one of them, I think, is co-written. Oh, it was written by Cross. Really? Yeah. I have. I had no idea whatsoever about this. I, I. I hear. Does it say anything like this here? No, probably not. On this, it's just just Michael Oakfield. All titles written by Michael. The exception arrival of obviously and wonderful land. So from on, on Celt, of course, the the words are by Tim Cross. Yeah. Um, Which are not words. Yeah, I don't get that either. Um, it's it's what he was speaking into the vocoder. Those yeah. are the words. Yeah. And then Maggie Riley probably sang the same words. So the QE two thing, I'll, I'll, we have to uh, look it up again. Um, I don't think I don't think that officially the writing was, I, as far as I know, and there was QE two one at part one. At yeah, that was two? that's for sure. Yeah, it was it was split up into two parts. I didn't know that at all. Well, it doesn't really make a difference, and it's. I think it's a bit artificial. Well, um, I, I know. I know that David Henschel said that he should have gotten a writing credit. Yeah, that's what he said in an interview. There was a different time, and I think he should have gotten a writing credit. You know, that's something that Trevor Horn also told me about many of his productions. Mm -hmm. And I think um, the fear at the time was of many producers was that. People would be hesitant to work with them for fear of the producer taking too much credit and yeah. money, so they yeah. didn't do it. I mean, it's 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 kind of like you 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 know people could get kind of like dis dismissive easily of the artists mm. to um, to um, care about such things, but it really makes a big difference. And sometimes I see that if the artist is the vehicle, let's say, for the creation. That sometimes um, it's very difficult to mm. to make that to split things up. That's why, like in my in my bands, like we have like the rule. Okay, we split it three ways. Like with Stigman, for example, no matter yeah. how much one guy brought into it, right? Because it's mm. either you have a rule or it's going to be very very difficult. Yeah. Right. So. <clears throat> It's on, on five miles out, there was a lot of like, credit splitting. Mm -hmm. And there was also a lot of, I think that, that was discussed also, um, who contributed to what. Um, obviously on crises, on, in, in the, uh, on the B side. Um, here, not so much on, uh, on QE2. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it sort of like uh, shines a different kind of like picture on the process. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Like and and like what I was saying, like we only we shouldn't only look at the instruments used, but we should look at the musicians used as sort of like an sort of an inventory of sounds and ideas and potential yep. developments of ideas, um, while at the same time not taking away from the fact that the last word. Obviously, always Mike had, yeah. and sort of like I know we've, we've used this word before, like the idea of curation, 
that it's some sort of artistic curation that um, that a composer also makes, right? If you have somebody improvise in the studio, let's say, it's a good question. Like, is it is it is that composition of the improvisation? Um, who do you credit that to? Right? I think this this time we're talking about is is exactly the time when these questions were renegotiated. Mm. Take take an album like um, An Asylum Way by Miles Davis, which was sort of the um, the earliest widely known example of this um, editing technique of uh, um, creating the piece in the studio, having yeah. musicians improvise and then creating the actual recording mm. in the studio. So is that a Miles Davis piece or is it a Tio Macero co-write? I mean, Macero created the entire thing in the studio, probably, even though that, of course, has been disputed by Miles Davis in a way. But... It seems um, pretty obvious that albums like Bitches Brew and this one were essentially studio creations. Um, so where is the actual, what, 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 what constitutes composition? What constitutes production? Um, I don't know if, if Henschel at the time thought he should have gotten the credit. Maybe it was just he was getting paid for his production work and that was it. And maybe that was fine. And then later on, this, um, it took a dip. Like today you would have, um, a lot more writing credits than uh, yeah. Like nowadays, everything split up like between yeah. fifteen people or yeah. whatever for a song, um, which is kind of ridiculous in a way. But I agree, it's interesting. Yeah. Like even just even just to know what the what the contributions are, it's interesting. Yes. I always loved that. I actually I like the idea of a of a of a general split among the musicians, but I also like something like a band like Yes, where you actually have specified who wrote which part of a longer comp uh, piece i think that's yes that's fascinating yes yes yes, yes. yeah and, and again having said that there's also like the curation the composer as a curator which um is kind of like something that i that i see as um yeah it's Again, like there are so like like people who have some sort of experience with creative processes, they know that it's not that easy, mm -hmm. uh, and just just the fact that um, this this idea that there is sort of like a creative um, that there are let's just call them mistakes that mistakes can happen, which then are inspirational, right? And you get more of that if yeah. you have real people in a studio. Yes. Right. Or if you have a keyboard player, like like having um, Tim Cross there. Mm -hmm. um, I hope I didn't say David Cross earlier. Actually, uh, I realize now Tim Cross <laughs> there in, in, in the studio um, as a great great keyboard player who could kind of like mimic brass, even like you know, and like that was like the old school school keyboard players who could kind of like recreate orchestral sounds yeah. out of those boxes, um, and. Uh, I think that that's really an asset, which um, not really so much here on Q2, maybe in conflict, um, it's a big factor, but later on and uh, five months out, there's uh, a lot of stuff that was only possible with those players. Yes. Yeah, yeah. very much so. And, then that, and that's why like Q2 is sort of like um, really, if you think of um, incantations as like the end of the first phase, and then you have platinum and QE2, platinum and QE2 are sort of parallel, mm -hmm. sort of parallel pathways. Yeah. 
right? So we're not con really connecting at the end of platinum, but we're still connecting at incantations. And uh, yeah, here's here's something else also. Um, there's a track called uh, it's called Waldberg the Peak. Mm -hmm. Actually, I learned from um, one of the Bavarian. Um, can't remember his name. Rainer was his name. He told me that it's actually Wallberg, which they visited, which is a Bavarian mountain, Wallberg. But it was called Waldberg, like Wald, like forest mountain. <laughs> um, on and it was the B side to um, a single, the Mike Oldfield group, mm -hmm. um, which had. Uh, five months, um, uh, not five months out, Family Man and Mistake, right on one side, and mm -hmm. it has this, this uh, Warburg, the Peak uh, <coughs> song on the other side. And uh, if you pay close attention, it's produced by David Hatchell. So it must be a track from the, actually from the QE2 sessions. And again, that's fascinating because it has that personnel, it has the same musicians. Um, but it was released, and this I'm not 100% sure, we'd have to check it, but it wasn't not, not released on the QE2 re-release. Re I think it mm. was released probably even on the, um, because this is kind of like, kind of like uh, wacky, because um, I think on the US version of Crisis, there was Mistake was mm. included. I think so, yes. And so since Mistake was kind of paired up with the B-side of, Waldberg, I think they even re-released that piece, which is originally from the QE2 times, released that with the uh, Crisis re-release, uh, which is crazy. Yeah. But anyway, like... It's, it's, and of course, you mentioned that it has to be because David Henschel is on there, because of course, Henschel, even though we think his work was great uh, and on this one... Um, there was no follow-up. There was no follow-up. Didn't yeah. return. Exactly. I, I, maybe it's a bit premature because um, Maggie Riley will become more prominent on the next two albums. But <clears throat> she seems to be an interesting con um, inclusion to me because you mentioned, we, we talked about the uh, proficient, like the incredible um, uh, well, virtuosity and um, musical in intelligence and um, creativity of the musicians here. They were all experienced musicians, great studio musicians, um, great live performers. Riley seems seems um, different. She's just she did not have that much clout at the time, and um, I, I'm I'm usually curious what you think. Why you think he he chose to get her into the band? I mean, there were other live like Wendy Roberts. Um, mm -hmm. If you look at the the Nebworth gig, which I think is one of the best um, recorded ones we have. Um, I think Roberts also has more stage presence, maybe me, but but I just think she she comes across as more confident and and she also has more singing parts on that on that on that gig. Um, I think she originally she was like the the second singer, right, with with Wayne Roberts on that yes, on that that's the way I would or nineteen eighty tour actually it was. Um, right, that was still the big band that was ten people or something, right, and she was in that. Mm -hmm. She was on the Nepworth concert as well, and um, and I mean, like, I I really don't know. As far as I can tell, now having spoken to some people who've worked with Mike, mm -hmm. um, the, um, the the 
the cho- you know you you choose people you like kind of right mm-hmm. you, uh, there's something about them and you you maybe you discover them in a professional context where as you say they are already accomplished like Mike Fry Morris Perf right but also in other cases maybe you like the voice of an unknown singer and you know like it kind of like fits like a glove in a way and you kind of like go go that way or in the case of Phil Beer who was a, a technician who came into my yeah. studio and then, you know stuff like that so I, I think it's um, uh, that's why we would have to ask Maggie maybe at some point how that all came about and that she came the voice right like and really and she has an amazing voice like, yes I guess something like really there's there's no other voice like that really uh, that compares to, like to my to my ear really and um yeah it's I, I think she has kind of like worked her way up from being like a the second singer, uh, the backup singer, and then uh, the lead vocalist. I'm just, I just find it interesting. I mean, on this album, she's still, um, she isn't that distinct as she would be on, on, for example, um, Crises, uh, or then later Discovery. There's this, these pieces, and she has a, so, such a different voice there, I, and. Um, she actually came from from soul and yes. uh, and yeah. funk and um, yeah. and she um, she mentioned how everyone in Scotland was trying to sound like uh, Frank Sinatra and um, and that's why she also like Ella Fitzgerald these these big crooning voices and there's and she was an amazing crooner and she was great yes. and then on on the later recordings where she's working with Mike on on these which weren't actually written to be pop singles but turned out to be huge hits. Um, it's almost like she's whispering, and um, it's it's so against what she where she came from. Then I'm just curious why what he would see in her. Sometimes I think when you see the live performances, she comes across as shy in these, and and she's actually said that I should. Um, there was a lot of traveling. She was probably one of the only women on on tour, yeah. and um, even though, for example, a gig like the Montreux one, um, it looks great on on, on video. It seems to have been a really small stage, and, uh, and the situation was they were standing on glass, which was really disorienting. Mm-hmm. But she was the thing is, she's compared to these more experienced musicians, she has a shyness to it. And I think, I don't know, I'm I'm, I'm surprised Mike would would be interested in that. Maybe, he, but you mentioned curation. Maybe it's precisely that in this group, which is super tight, super professional. There's this this one element element which is. Um, surprise which you don't know is it going to is she going to be pitch perfect or is it is it not going to be but when she is pitch perfect i think she's amazing there are um, there's a gig, there's a gig there's gigs from the from that period where she is absolutely stunning i mean <clears throat> yes and there's there's this famous um um cologne show yes. which was around as a bootleg for a long time and which has been released with a uh, five months out um, deluxe edition where her voice is completely shot mm-hmm. completely shot like really bad health you know um and she does it anyway she sings that show anyway and it's kind of like you could say it's painful to listen to in one way like like to mm-hmm. re-experience her pain doing that yeah. but then also to see like that um in a way what you say 
a part of the, the, the potential expressive range in her voice, funnily enough, comes out in that performance. Yeah. Um, where they yeah. say like that, where it's less of the, of the soft voice, mm -hmm. which again, as a studio guy, Mike kind of like made that, blew that voice up with a magnifying glass yeah. to kind of like bring that, that special, and you, you can really get more detail if it's a soft voice, yeah. soft singing. Um, anyway, and uh, yeah, I, I, I will never forget that um, because that was also the time when I first saw Mike with that tour in, in 1982 when, mm -hmm. Ma when Maggie really had the spotlight already, right? Like with uh, Family Man and uh, yeah, right, so. Yeah, she's, I mean, even also in, in terms of the presentation. Um, and she was doing unconventional things on, on stage. It's, uh, you mean, yeah, it's not scatting. It's scatting, yeah, uh, like the platinum. Yeah. She was um, scatting the platinum melody. Yeah. Which is, which is not easy. He was going, to, I think the live shows, there was something really, he had, I think he had a big concept musically. Mm -hmm. It's there's there's so much in there. Anyway, I just um, I think we'll talk about that more in yeah, yeah, we, when, when it comes sure to those, we'll, yeah, those yeah. albums. Um, yeah. So um, so let's come back to QE two. I mean, what what's your um, what's your take on it? And then do you have anything else written? That we talked can... about a lot of it. Um, <clears throat> I think the discussion has been more piece like it's been more. Um, it's been less um, organized this time, I think, but I think that's because the album also has sort of a scenic character, you know. Mm -hmm. um, one thing which which I thought about is just from the psychological point of view is um, whatever the reason may have been that he came to um, record an album of shorter pieces, I think it can have to do with 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 the psychological changes he's going through at this moment as well. Um, you know, one one motivation, why one reason I think why people some people prefer the longer pieces to the shorter pieces, is that in a long piece you can have all emotions and you can go to really radical extremes and then reconcile the extremes. I think there's a sense of not just of a journey, but also of reconciliation, which I think for him was probably something that was important. Mm. Um, if, like, if, you, if you go to one extreme, then make sure to also go into the other to balance it out. Um, so in, in his music, he's balancing out the extremes which are so hurtful to him in his, in his actual life. Um, he's creating an ideal world where he can, where he has something to um, push back against the, 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 um, the hurt that is coming in. And I think um, after his therapy, he's now in a place where he can actually leave the these extremes for what they are without having to feel the need to actually balance it out. So there's, I think the, the um, there's no, there's less darkness on here and there's more a sort of, um, he's confident enough and uh, musically adept enough to, to just go with something which is beautiful and, and happy and not have to have a balance it out with something dark. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe. You know, like the, the, the Hergis, Hergis Ridge, where, this, where you got this massive organ, distorted organ section mm -hmm. to balance out the, um, the surrounding serenity. Mm -hmm. You don't need that here. It's just, it's, yeah. it's okay to, to, to just be happy. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's probably a thing I, I take from this album. Is um, it's a psychological step. It's it's the collaboration with other musicians is moving into a new phase where. Um, I mean, like something we haven't mentioned yet. It was funny. Um, like we were talking about the two cover songs, right? But mm-hmm. the fact that within conflict you have yeah. the the, the, Bach. the Bach quote, yeah. um, which is so. I mean, again, I would say that's maybe Tim Cross, mm-hmm. but I don't know. But it's it's just fit, fits so perfectly well, right? Yeah. So so it, it's sort of like this 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 process of op- like of opening up. Mm-hmm. As you say, like psychologically, and also like giving like the option of, uh, I don't know how you put it, but like the, the to focus on the the positive, let's say, mm-hmm. or there's no need for the counterweight uh, or something. But at the same time, you have the musicians bringing in more ideas, more elements, um, skills, right? So, so uh, in a way, this was the beginning of where he could have kind of gone anywhere. Mm-hmm. Right with this, like say with the hope. I don't remember. Like, like say, hopefully the financial possibilities, um, as well as the mm. um, the the reputation. I don't know how it was <laughs> really, but between musicians, like I, like most musicians, I know, so I have some sort of like um, um, experience with all fields music that mm-hmm. is profound. So um, so he could have gone anywhere. And that's why it like these next few years are so incredibly uh, interesting. I I think. And I think so too. It's yeah. it's a, such a dense period. There's so much happening in a very short amount of time. And even if you just like if you just look at the studio recordings, there's a lot happening. But then there's constant live touring, mm-hmm. um, and um, and the pieces are constantly reimagined. So ahead of the Nebworth gig, he talks about how he's um, thinking about um, constantly thinking about variations on the tubular belt. Exactly, you know? and that variation is is the beginning of uh, of QE2. Yeah, uh, not of QE2 of uh, Taurus One. Taurus One. Yes, and uh, which means that, for example, something like tubular bells two that was not that didn't come out of the blue. That was some. Uh, he was constantly reimagining the music and. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he was he was doing that from the very beginning. Like, well, let's say very beginning, meaning like we've already pointed out these relationships. But actually, platinum being like the first step of like I don't know consciously where where uh, recreating mm. the beginning, which obviously it was not, yeah. but but sort of like taking inspiration and um the like we'll get there but 10 year 10 year release crisis mm. then making the first really obvious like, reference to celebrate tubular bells well taurus 2 has this so i don't know if it's a recorder section doesn't it also play the tubular bells theme in the middle of taurus 2 oh yeah sure but i mean like the like like the the obvious mm. but but anyway um and and yes and it, it's sort of it's sort of I don't think, like some people say that there's like a rehashing of ideas. I don't think that was ever the case. I don't think so. I think it's more, more of a, more of a, um, uh, should I say this? Like, he's kind of like found something that was so profound mm-hmm. so early in this life that 
it wouldn't have made sense not to actually and and, and in a way it's it's a very uh, it's a very um mature and wise um understanding of life to see that everything is just a a mashup of yes. something else yeah. right and and to kind of like go about that and at the same time as we were saying still to always create something new to find a new form for maybe what is the same content the and in eventually in the end the content is the artist right so like you you are you are your and again here comes the word curation like in the end it's your taste yeah it's your taste which defines where you're going and like if if you're writing down like um musical notes on a piece of paper or on uh, on cigarette paper like Mike did or if you are asking a musician to maybe play something a little different or to add a little uh you know some ornamentation to a part you know that that's all it all comes down like to the curation yeah in the end and um and this is this is sort of like you too is sort of um just like platinum like i said it's parallel it's sort of like an opening to all these possibilities. Mm. And also, I think the um, the preference for doing it rather than labor over it, laboring over it endlessly. Mm. Um, of course, I mean, this period you could have maybe instead of doing three albums, you could have maybe done one, mm -hmm. and then you would have maybe less rehashing which it is not anyway but less, less rehashing mm. but um, i think that th his mentality at the time was to just do it yeah <clears throat> there's so much on maybe you know um you could always go back and make these per more perfect and as i said i think maybe the sequencing isn't isn't the best on the b side and this but the thing is that it's there yeah. we have some, we have one more oldfield album exactly and that's great of, of course and you know, I remember, and I, I said this before, that there is an interview from around this time that I read. I think I don't, or maybe it was a recording. I can't remember now. Where he was saying, and it was this time where he was saying that he's trying, still trying, to make the most, and he used the word spiritual, mm -hmm. spiritual yes. music. And in the in the context of this album, it seems kind of like, in a way, funny because. Because it seems like he's opening so much to like more, as you say, like mm. commercial or like a, a collaboration. And let's what you would say, like spirituality, maybe is more personal thing. Mm. But here is opening up, and at the same time, like he still has the mindset of making something that is really deeply moving mm. people. And uh, yeah, it seems to be that a lot of people at the time. Of his core fans didn't appreciate it so much. A lot of people got to know him through it, mm. but many, so from the forum entries I've read, many of people who actually return to it prefer like it a lot more now. Mm. So it seems to have needed a bit of distance, which is probably totally natural for something which is a point of departure. Point of departure, and like I say, it's really in his whole catalog, maybe the most most futuristic yeah. wacky uh kind of sounding record with maybe five months out topping it in the wackiness factor right but
but but really it's uh it's uh, it's such a great cool sounding record and and i do recommend to everyone to to listen to it yeah, yeah. i really do i also yeah I was going to say it's 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 really not conceptual also, which I like about it. The, 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 the QE2 thing, that I think that's just a name. Yeah, well, that's that's another thing. Like, is there any relevance to the name? I don't think so. I mean, um, all I, again, we we will never know. But um, mm. um, I think it's kind of telling that, as far as I know, uh, it's unknown who did the artwork. Mm. Um, the first pressings of this one had um, a cutout. So there was actually the, the, yes, the yes. white spot. There's a cutout. Yeah. Yes. This one, the, the CD, early CD, doesn't have it. Funnily enough, and it also yeah, this, had this little gauge thing. Yeah, uh, the gauge thing was all. It was there, but but on the inside of the first pressing, there was also um, um, how you call that? The sort of a schematic the of schematic, of, yes, of the yes, QE2. Yes, I that. And that you know, I have a pressing um, on vinyl which has nothing. I actually have a uh, misprint on the cover where it's not black. The black surface is mm. not black but gray. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I used to have it like yeah. stolen from me, but. <laughs> I really think this one, it's, it's, I think the, the spontaneity is what, what, what counts and anything else is um, superimposed later, like post recording. Um, the only thing he says in the, in the biography is um, it was originally supposed to be called Titanic and then um, that sounded a bit um, Negative, really? uh, negative, and then they went for QE2. Really, I never heard that. No. That's that's that. Uh, I can't didn't remember that. That's okay. That explains something. Because I was thinking that maybe the two, sort of like was referencing, was sort of like a, I don't know, I was stupid, but sort of like going for like, okay, this is nice. This is the second try. Hmm. Where platinum maybe was like the first, and then it's the second try to go somewhere else to kind of like get away from. I I don't know. I yeah. I, I it's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. But just like, uh, <laughs> or what does QE? You know, Queen Elizabeth or Elizabeth. Yeah. But it could also uh, mean um, I don't know. Quality experiment or quality experiment <laughs> or quantity experiment. It's certainly, I mean, it's it's in in this lineage of of album titles. It's an unusual one. Yes, it's so it's a cold, almost. Um, yeah, technical. Technical. Yes. Um, term. Yes. Yeah, I like it. Me too. I also like the cover. I think. Um, yeah, actually, the cover as well. It it could. I mean, I know it's supposed to be the hull of a ship, but it, it looks very almost like um, a Mondrian um, yeah. painting. It's very much of its time too. Like if you think about it, like the cover design of uh, the early eighties, yeah. uh, where things became so graphical yeah. and minimal, and um, yeah. Okay, dude. I think this must have been like the longest. It's probably. <laughs> I also thought it was more disorganized, but there is a lot of it, and it's hard to pin down. I, I don't think it's disorganized. I think we did very well in kind of like describing the, the fact how it's somewhat all over the place and mm. not conceptual. But and then at the at the end, you decide to kind of like cut the big track apart, and like that's uh -huh. how how I feel about the podcast now as well. 
<laughs> but we're not going to edit this. Um, and like our our main recorder um, died in the middle, so this is going to have a different sound quality because um, the backup of the phone is what we're going to use for this. But, so it's uh, going to sound as different from our usual yes. podcast as Kiwi's. And maybe we can employ some artificial intelligence to clean up the recording. Let's oh, see. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, thanks, everyone. See you in the next year.